So many of you who are familiar with the early teachings of the Buddha and the text um, will be also very familiar with the way that often the teaching is organized. And, you know, bearing in mind this was an oral tradition, the organization of the teaching, particularly into lists, seven of this and eight of this and ten of this and five of these and four of those, that this is actually, uh, it, as an oral tradition, this is, this is a memory aid. This helps us to remember. It helps us to remember. And in many ways, all of these lists, you know, whether it's seven factors of awakening or eightfold path or, you know, five spiritual powers, many of these lists, of course, are really pointing to pathways of development, pathways of cultivation and pathways of awakening. What also becomes very apparent is that these pathways often share in common uh, the beginning in mindfulness, the beginning in sati. Um, and sati, of course, of mindfulness in, in the Buddhist teaching is a very, is a word with many nuances. It's a very multi-dimensional word. But it is the beginning of everyone's path because this is where we begin to wake up, we begin to investigate, we begin to question, we begin to form a relationship with our life. And in a way, mindfulness teaches us in a way to almost a process of deconstructing <laughs> in the sense that we question our assumptions, we question our views, we question our likes and our dislikes. We question our judgments, we question our ideas of selfing, all in the service of seeing what creates suffering and what brings suffering to an end. But what is also, I think, clear in the teaching is that sati or mindfulness is always looking for friends. That sati is always part of an extended family and it's that rarity of a cooperative, happy family, communicating with one another, you know, actually in a place of dialogue and, and participation. But sati is always looking for friends. It never, ever stands alone. You know, it's not enough just to be mindful. Mindfulness is actually given its, its, its juice and its power by its cooperation with other qualities that we develop. And of course, mindfulness in, in the Dharma, in the teaching, is, is not an end in itself. It's actually the supporting condition of insight. So some of the great, you know, we could talk about a lot of great friends or family members of sati. Um, you know, energy, perseverance, investigation. But some of the great friends of Sati are actually found within the Brahma Viharas. And I'm sure probably everybody in this room is familiar with the four Brahma Viharas of metta, of compassion, of appreciative joy, and of equanimity. Now, there is much to be said about these, but the first thing I could say about these qualities is that they are indispensable. They are the foundation 
of all meditative development. They are not nice add-ons or poor cousins or, you know, somehow secondary pathways that without the Brahma-Vihara's involvement, I don't think sati or mindfulness is mindfulness at all. I suspect it's something more like attention regulation. Now, the Buddha describes the Brahma-Viharas as the most noble way of being in this world. He also describes developing metta, compassion, joy, and equanimity to the depth that they are actually unshakable or immeasurable. And I think we've often heard that vaguely. I wonder if we actually really consider the implications of that. Unshakable and immeasurable. They have embedded themselves in the bones, but they have been able to do that because they are insights. They are paths of awakening. Now, there's four things that I would say about the Brahma-Viharas. One of them, the first is that these are virtues. These are ethics. These are the, described the most ethical way of being in the world. And they are virtues in the sense of being noble qualities of heart and mind. The second thing I would mention is that they are seeds of possibility that live within every human heart. Seeds of potentiality, see inclinations that live within every human heart. If those seeds were not present in each of us for uh, metta, for compassion, for joy and equanimity, we would not be able to cultivate them or develop them. The third thing I would say is that the Brahma-Viharas are fruitions. If you want to know what an awakened mind looks like, if you ask that question, an awakened mind is a mind that is imbued and pervaded with unshakable matter, compassion, joy, and equanimity. You know, and, and this is what we aspire to. This is what we aspire to. Um, this is the kind of mind, the kind of heart we are endeavoring to cultivate. You know, and it's not, you know, if you want to know what an awakened being looks like, you would look for the unshakability of these qualities. You wouldn't look for somebody who's kind of grumpy and irritable and, you know, short-tempered and judgmental and, and, and moody and think, oh, well, gosh, that must be the nature of a, the, of a Buddha. No, you would look actually for the unshakability of these qualities. The fourth thing I would say about them is that they are pathways, okay? They are trainings, they are cultivations, they are meditative developments that deepen and that grow through the attention that is given to them. Now these qualities of better, compassion, joy, and equanimity, they are not standalone qualities. These are very interrelated cultivations, they're very interrelated qualities. Although they can be focused on individually as pathways, I think in reality they, they, can, they don't exist without the other. They're part of, a, part of a whole. And metta is often said to guard compassion, for example. Metta guards compassion from partiality. 
you know, from saying that some people are worthy of compassion and others not, or some experiences are worthy of compassion and others not. So metta in its boundless nature is guarding compassion from partiality. Metta imparts to equanimity almost its selfless nature and, and the edge of softness and care within equanimity. A compassion protects metta and joy from forgetfulness, and that is really important. I mean, you, any of you who practice metta or, or, or cultivate joy in the practice know that one of the kind of near enemies or, or, or kind of edges of those cultivations is forgetfulness. We simply feel good. You know, we feel good when we're abiding in metta. You know, we, we actually feel pretty good when joy is present. And then it's very easy to be forgetful. We forget about the immensity of pain and suffering in the world. And actually part of that forgetfulness can even be a kind of clinging to the, the qualitative sense of, of metta or of joy. The heart remembers the immensity of suffering. The stirring of metta encourages us to widen the field of our compassion. The boundless nature of metta encourages us to widen the field of our concern, to include all beings, all events, all experiences. Equally, compassion guards equanimity from falling into indifference, a kind of coldness or remoteness removed from life. Joy protects compassion from being overwhelmed. I think in opening our hearts, opening our minds, widening the field, the dimensions of our concern and care, we do become acutely aware of the almost endlessness, it seems, of suffering and conflict and pain that is in our world. And it's very easy in that awareness, without joy and without equanimity, to be overwhelmed or feel overwhelmed, and then to close down. Joy gladdens the mind. It allows us to move into the difficult, move into the imperfect, move into, into domains of suffering, still sustaining that kind of contentment and ease within our, our well-being. And it is important for any of you who actually work outside of retreat in caring situations. You know, we know how easy it is, exposed to the painful, exposed to the difficulty, I might say, even here on retreat. You know, if you're sitting with chronic pain or with chronic illness, to be exposed to that over and over again joy often feels to disappear. And it, it is so important to remember how much joy is part of this fabric of awakening, part of the fabric of compassion. And it cannot, we cannot afford to think that joy is going to come after all difficulty has been resolved or fixed. Equanimity is very much a guiding or a restraining power for metta and for joy and for compassion. It keep, equanimity keeps pointing out the direction of the path. 
I mean, in the early texts, equanimity is often used interchangeably with nibbana or liberation. And it points out that this is actually the direction of this path. It's the direction of all of our practice. But equanimity brings other qualities into our practice, doesn't it? It brings firmness, commitment. Equanimity brings patience. Equanimity allows for courage and for fearlessness. And it's often said that equanimity is the crown of all of the Brahmaviharas. Now, there are two ways, you know, there, there are two ways of, of, of approaching the Brahmaviharas. And I, and I hope that nobody feels that somehow these are separate from their practice or, or some other cultivation or something to do later. Um, I think to imbue everything we do with these attitudes and these qualities is actually what makes this practice transformative. It really these are the qualities that create the, the landscape of the mind in which insight can really grow and can really deepen. So there's two ways of practicing uh, with the Brahma-viharas. Um, all of them rest upon, of course, sati, remembering. Remembering. Remembering the attitude we bring to the sitting. Remembering the attitude we bring to this walking. Now, one way, of course, in which the Brahma-viharas are cultivated, and it's probably the one that many of you have been most familiar with, is as a concentration practice. You know, where we, we choose certain phrases, we choose certain intentions, and words that articulate those intentions, and we re repeat them pretty continuously. And as a concentration practice, the Brahma-viharas are usually held within human domains of relationship. You know, self, benefactor, friend, neutral person, difficult person. Now, there is a, a great value, I think, in this, because concentration, of course, is, is the greatest, one of the greatest guardians of the mind. Concentration is one of the great protectors of the mind. Concentration is what protects the mind from proliferation, from rumination, from obsession. Our capacity to be able to sustain attention with a single object. Okay? Now many people, of course, find the Brahma-viharas particularly useful as a concentration practice because the mind is engaged with it. You know, by using the phrases, which of course are thoughts, the mind is actually in, invited into the process, whereas many concentration practices basically invite the mind to pack up shop and retire, which is why many people find concentration so difficult, by the way, because the mind is not usually so cooperative in that sense. But by using the phrases, the, you know, the mind begins to, f to focus, the proliferations begin to focus, and this begins to be a calming of the narratives the calming of the narratives. And, and in a very real way, that calming of the narratives, calming of the proliferation, is a very key piece, isn't it, in cultivating a mind which actually feels to be a friend, which genuinely feels to be a refuge. And, you know, I can think of hardly any greater blessing in this life than to actually have a mind that feels to be a friend and a refuge. 
rather than a place of danger or a place of threat or a place of unreliability. So the Brahma-Viharas as a concentration practice is very much kind of serving that purpose. But as an insight practice, the Brahma-Viharas in themselves are complete pathways of awakening. But for the Brahma-Viharas to be an insight practice, they need to include in their development an examination and an investigation of two things. Anicca, dukkha, anatta, and an investigation of greed, hatred, and delusion. Without those investigations, there are not going to be insight practices. But if you actually consider the nature of boundless friendliness, not particularly much ill will or hatred there at all, is there? If there's no ill will and hatred, there is no selfing. If there's no selfing, there is no ill will or hatred. So, metta, metta is the indispensable foundation of all the ennobling qualities in this practice. And I become very difficult, uh, reluctant actually to translate this word metta because I just feel like I, I, I'm in an ongoing process of trying to find English words, never mind in any other language, English words that accurately portray what metta is. Certainly I, I don't ever use the phrase loving kindness. Um, it's not a very accurate translation of metta. <laughs> um, uh, metta has its, its roots, of course, in the Pali word metri, which is to befriend, to be a friend to. The reservation I have about using the phrase loving kindness is that I, I find it very difficult to ask somebody who's sitting with chronic pain or illness or some terrible life situation to suggest to them that they might learn to love this. I don't think they need to for there to be metta. And I think that suggestion of loving kindness means for some people that they have felt eternally exiled from the cultivation of metta because it seems like an impossible ask. I may not actually love at all you know, my chronically disabled back or the difficult neighbor I live beside but I may be able to stand next to them. I may be able to establish a dialogue with them. I may be able to stand near to them and to begin to befriend the difficult. It is the foundation of all meditative deepening, um, the commitment not to abandon anything. And it is a kind of sati. It's a kind of sati. In fact, in the teaching, the, the, the discourse on metta, exactly the same encouragement is used as in the Satipatthana discourse. Whether standing, whether sitting, whether walking, whether lying down, remain in this abiding. Establish oneself in this abiding of boundless friendliness. This is the most noble way of being in the world. So if we were to consider metta, 
as a path of awakening and as a path of deepening in insight and understanding, then I'm sure if I asked any of you, what is the insight that Metta is really concerned with? The answer, I'm sure, is pretty obvious. The power of aversion. This is, in a way, the work of Metta. This is the job of Metta, is actually to uproot the power of ill will, to uproot the tendency of ill will. Think of what aversion and ill will, the effect that they have on us moment to moment. What is the energy of ill will? It's to abandon. It's to distance ourselves from. It's to dissociate. It's to disconnect. And then following that initial reaction of ill will, there comes the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth arrows of judgment and blame and guilt and trying to almost legitimize the feeling of aversion. But it is, it is an, it injures, of course, aversion injures the well-being of our own hearts, the well-being of our own minds. Uh, aversion fractures communities, it fractures relationships, it fractures societies, it le its outcome is, is injury, is, is, is harm. And actually this is the commitment of metta, and our commitment to metta is to uproot that pattern. You can kind of see the link, can't you, that, that mindfulness or sati is, is very much challenging that impulse to turn away from. Because huh? the, the, the impulse of mindfulness is to turn towards. Whereas the impulse of aversion is to turn away from. So we bring that impulse of mindfulness to turn towards what is being experienced, but that is not emotionally or qualitatively neutral. It is an attitudinal commitment in turning towards to stand near to, to befriend, to begin a dialogue with what we have turned towards with that commitment born of seeing the suffering that is the outcome of ill will, that commitment to uprooting ill will. Now there is a huge insight element to metta. I mean, I think if you look at any area of uh, dissociation, disconnection in your day, you're probably going to find the the presence of aversion or ill will in some form. So it, it's, it's our most powerful dissociative mechanism. When there is dissociation or disconnection, the door to understanding closes, doesn't it? Because our dedication is to get as far away as possible from what we don't like or what we fear or what we judge or what we blame. So the door to understanding closes. So metta is very much about turning the tide of that most powerful psychological emotional pattern to disconnect in the face of the difficult, to abandon, and to make that conscious commitment to turn towards being aware that dissociation and disconnection are powerful players in the perpetuation and continuation of suffering. It takes a lot of courage to do that. 
takes a lot of courage to do that. That to find that willingness to, to begin to establish those dialogues takes, I feel, an enormous amount of fearlessness. Now, in traditional practices of metta, as I mentioned earlier, the, these really tend to operate within the human domains of self and friend and benefactor. And these are kind of skillful means, but they were kind of made up like quite a long time after the Buddha's death, you know. If we actually even went to the early text, you know, we would, our, our human domains would be the, the stout and the short and the tall and the big and, you know, they, they wouldn't actually be friends, benefactors or anything else in there. Um, but it's really describing the many dimensions of human beings and it's skillful means to use the human domains. It, does anybody have a version elsewhere? Is always my question when it comes to meta. Huh? I mean, is the aversion we feel for the unpleasant sound or the, the pain in our knee or the lunch we don't like, you know, is our aversion any different there than it is for our noisy neighbor or our, you know, our, our troublesome next door roommate? It's no different, is it? So the place of metta is not about just getting better human relationships. The place of metta is establishing the freedom from ill will in every moment that aversion arises. So if we want to ask where do we cultivate metta, most of us don't really have to look very far, by the way. Um, we look for all of those moments where aversion, impatience, frustration, judgment, blame, contractedness, any of those moments are the moments where metta is really being invited as an investigation, as an awakening factor. But of course, in those moments, even if we were still to use the phrases, which can again be very skillful means and very helpful, the phrases really need to change and to become relational. Um, and to become actually verbs, verbs. So, you know, perhaps I'm sitting in the midst of a, you know, a great emotional storm that I really don't like. Or perhaps I'm sitting with a body that feels really racked with pain. Or perhaps I'm sitting with a memory that is really difficult. Or I'm sitting in the midst of a, a building site in a, what does metta look like in those moments? You know, it's may I be peaceful in the midst of this. May I be safe and well in the midst of this. May I live with ease and with kindness in the midst of this. Metta is not asking that anything goes away for us to feel that sense of befriending or develop that capacity befriending. It's that the, the difficult goes away is not a precondition for metta. If that was so, metta would make no sense. It is a way of developing that quality of relatedness within the difficult where we firmly establish our abiding, our abiding within that intention to befriend. It might not feel good. But that is the intention we commit to. Metta is really said to be truly the foundation of compassion. It is what compassion 
actually builds upon. And there, there's two dimensions to compassion, and compassion is very central in this teaching. It's really said to be why we practice, why the whole path developed. You know, when the Buddha was asked, why, why do we do this? Out of compassion. Out of compassion, out of concern for our well-being and for the well-being of all beings. So there's two dimensions of compassion. Many of you will know about it. Again, compassion is, is a word primarily borrowed, I, th I think, from the Christian tradition, again, because it wasn't really a, a good word. So in the Pali, of course, there's, there's two words. The first word is anukampa, the heart that can tremble in the face of suffering, the empathy, the stillness inwardly, that we can receive the difficult, receive suffering, stand upright in the face of suffering, and feel the heart tremble. This is not only external, by the way. This is internal. If you sit with an emotional storm, a, a, a cognitive chaos, you know, a distressed body, unaccompanies our capacity to know this as suffering, to know it as sorrow, to know it as distress, and have our hearts tremble in the face of that suffering or distress within our own being. So this is not just about others or an external orientation, it's about an internal orientation. So the first aspect is that empathy, and the second aspect is karuna, which is how do I respond? What can I offer? What can be offered to heal this pain or to heal or ease the suffering. Sometimes all that can be offered is the trembling. But many times, of course, something else can be offered. And again, this is not just external, this is internal. When we stand upright and feel our hearts tremble in the midst of distress inwardly, Karuna says, what does this need? What will be helpful? what can be brought and cultivated that can ease this contractedness. Now the inside aspect, I think, of compassion, and I will use that word because it's too much of a mouthful to say anukampa karuna continuously. Although it's not bad. So, so, so the inside aspect of anukampa karuna is an, a genuine investigation into our relationship to pain our relationship to discomfort and distress. You know, more and more I come to see in life that it is our relationship, the relationship we form with pain and distress and discomfort that comes to shape who we believe ourselves to be as a human being and what is possible for us. If my relationship to discomfort and distress is always only one of fear, that I can't bear this, I can't meet this, I can't accommodate this, I can't embrace this, I can't respond to this. If our relationship to pain, discomfort, distress, from the low-level discomforts to the big pains in our life, 
If our relationship, our automatic relationship to that is one of fear, what is our life going to look like? Agitated. Involve endlessly creating avoidance strategies. How do I get away from this? How do I mute it? How can I numb myself to this? How can I not feel? It will shape our sense of who we are, and it will shape our, uh, shape our life and shape our sense of possibility. We may come to feel the only way that we can relate to pain is to somehow dissociate. If we can turn towards discomfort with mindfulness and with metta, to see suffering as suffering, not as me, not as mine, not as you, not as yours, then we have a possibility both for the heart to tremble and for us to respond, to take care. We will also have a greater sense of possibility inwardly of actually liberating our own hearts from the causes of suffering. Now, in the Brahma Vihara's uh, joy, this quality of joy is, is the word in Pali is mudita, which is translated again in a lot of different ways. And I, I think it is a kind of empathic joy. It's an appreciative joy. I mentioned it in my talk the other day. It's a capacity to celebrate, to celebrate what is well, to, to actually delight in what is well. And again, these are not the huge moments. You know, quite frankly, all of us sitting here got quite a bit going on right now that's quite well. Hmm? There, there may not be, there may be things that feel rather imperfect. We've probably actually got, maybe got more going on right now that's quite well than what is imperfect. First of all, we're here. This is good news. <laughs> we, you know, we, we, ha we had the support and conditions in our life that allow us to be here. And to come here, isn't that amazing? Hmm? Isn't that amazing? I've got all kinds of bits in my body right now that are really perfectly content. That's fantastic, you know. Um, I, have a, I have a heart and a mind with a wonderful capacity for development and cultivation. Isn't that amazing? Hmm? I have a, a sense of confidence and possibility in, in waking up and, and in deepening. Isn't that something to be celebrated? And it, it, we, we often miss this piece, I think, our inclination to focus on the imperfect and what is wrong and, and, and faulty is so powerful that it creates a kind of forgetfulness. And, it, it, you know, that's the nature of contractedness, isn't it, is to create forgetfulness. I remember years ago co-teaching here with a really good friend of mine, and, and I think I arrived in the morning, and, and I, I, I suspect I looked a little grumpy. You know, and he started with this long list of questions. You know, like, did you get breakfast this morning? I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, fantastic. He said, your car started? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you got here without mishap? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your family's still still part of you. Still your family? Yeah, 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 yeah. He said, you're breathing? Oh, great. You know, and with every kind of question, I could sort of feel this sense of, ah, ah. It wasn't a denial of the difficult, it wasn't a kind of pretending or contriving, but really appreciating how much our really world is shaped by the state of our mind. 
and how, you know, in states of distress or contractedness, the times when we most need the Brahma Viharas, these are the times when the Brahma Viharas feel most forgotten and most removed. But in times of distress, when we're so, when we are so amnesic about kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity, this is where mindfulness or sati is working hand in hand, teaching us to remember. Teaching us to remember. We cannot contrive joy. We cannot pretend joy. But we can learn to make a lot of room for joy. To make room so that that which is well can actually touch us. And surely you've seen this in yourself, you know. Maybe you go outside in a walking period, you know, and again the mood's a little grumpy, you know, and oh, the complaint list is really long, you know. The weather's poor, you know, and cold, you know, will it ever stop raining, you know. And, didn't bring the right clothes, and well, how come nobody else is walking here? They're off having tea, you know. Oh, you know, trees. Oh, who cares about trees, you know? I, I mean, you can feel that there's no room to be touched, is there? And you, you can go outside in the walking period with, with, with a quality of remembering. And it doesn't mean that the difficult has magically disappeared, but there's room to be touched by the, the sight of the space around the trees. Or, or the bird, the sound of the birds, you know, or, or, or the, the coolness of, of the air on the skin. There's room to be touched, and you feel the heart can begin to gladden, begin, begin to have a taste of joy. And of course, joy is a quality, again, that has many dimensions from this absolute sense of delight and celebration to, to just a quieter sense of contentment and that there's nothing missing. And if I think about what is the insight element of joy, it, it's two things. One is the one aspect of insight that joy is concerned with is uprooting mana, the conceit of self. Because if I feel to be inferior to you, I'm going to actually be so busy comparing myself to you and envying you, I won't have much room to celebrate anything that's going well for you or for me. But the second insight aspect of joy is concerned with really uprooting this chronic, disabling sense of insufficiency. That I don't have enough, I'm not enough, I'm not good enough, I'm not lovable enough. This disabling sense of insufficiency that makes us prowl the world looking for a solution to the unhappiness of that insufficiency through what can I get, the whole trigger of craving. What can I get? What can I get from the world? What, what I need to become? What I need to be well? What I need to be, to be a human being? That disabling sense of insufficiency, which quite frankly suffocates joy. First of all, because it's so busy, you know, constantly trying to maintain myself as a full-time job. Um, but it's so busy, but it's also so unhappy. So joy is really, really coming to that, that very core teaching of the Buddha, that the genuine sources of joy, the genuine sources of happiness are born within our own hearts. 
are not delivered from the world of conditions. There can be much that is lovely in life, but genuine joy, genuine happiness is born within our own hearts. And the whole pathway of formal meditative development is really directed towards embracing that insight. You know, you know you have moments of well-being in practice. You have moments of contentment. You have moments of sufficiency, moments of peace. And you come to know that these, have actually, these are actually inwardly born. You, know? you really come to have confidence in that. This is inwardly born, not delivered by conditions. It changes our relationship to the world of conditions from being a relationship of grasping and craving identification to a relationship of celebration, appreciation, and care. Now, the last of the Brahmavaharas, of course, is, is again this, this quality of equanimity, which is hardly a word we use in English. I don't know in any other language. You know, it's kind of archaic word, you know. It, you know, you can't even imagine using it in ordinary conversation. You know, if somebody turned up in your door in the morning and said, how are you? And you answered, perfectly equanimous. You know, this is probably not something you would say. And yet, Upeka is so, it's at the heart of this teaching. As the Buddha says, this is Nibbana. This is blowing out the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion and discovering and abiding within this unshakable poise. Now the insight, of course, the fruition, that is the fruition, but then there is also the path. And the insight part of equanimity is really being aware in our own practice, in our own day, all of the moments when we are not abiding in that place of poise when we are for or against, wanting, not wanting, liking, disliking, resisting, pursuing, preferencing, excluding, to look at all of the moments in our day when that poise is not present and to look at what is actually going on in those moments and to see how much, again, that it's not the world of conditions that, are sentence, that is sentencing us to this pendulum of extremes, but our reaction to the world of conditions. Our reaction to the world of conditions and our demands that really life really should be the way I want it to be. It really should be the way I want it to be. Equanimity, I think, is a hugely challenging development because our, our capacity to be knocked off balance seems to be almost ever-present. You know, if you notice a little sound, a little thought, a body sensation, and we're off on one of those extremes of liking or disliking, it's truly a practice to come back, begins with mindfulness, begins with metta, the willingness to befriend unconditionally, the willingness to see suffering as suffering, because mostly what shatters equanimity is selfing. The I am. That this is me, this belongs to me, this is happening to me, this is who I am. You know, everything else kind of gathers around that, that and that's mostly 
what shatters equanimity. But learning again that this is not a, a life sentence, there's nothing predetermined about that off-balance state. We learn to come back, to breathe out, to rest, to be with what's there, to find that willingness to be equally near all things, developing that capacity to be equally near all things. And we begin to sense equanimity emerging, beginning to, to be more trustworthy, beginning to be a place of abiding. Thank you. Thank you for your attention. <laughs>